0: From its first words to its last, the Gospel of Matthew calls people to a radical new frame of mind. In this literary masterpiece, the outsiders are brought in, the rich are exposed as poor, and those who seem most powerful are proven to be weak. But nothing in this book is as shocking as the circumstances surrounding the birth, life, death, and resurrection of a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth and the claims he makes on our lives. It's a narrative so profound, everyone has a response. Well, good morning. It's great to see you this morning. Uh, Awesome to have you here with us. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, please grab it. Uh, Turn to the Gospel of Matthew, first book in the New Testament. We are done chapter 15 now. We're starting chapter 16 today. If you don't have a physical Bible with you, that's okay. You can grab something on your, uh, an app on your phone. Uh, We also have some Bibles for you there at the back, but you will need that text in front of you today, Matthew 16, 1 to 12. I want to get right into it, so let me read the text for us. Uh, I'll pray, and then we'll get moving. Matthew 16. Uh, In verse 1, we read this And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, meaning Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, "O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That's God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you, God. Thank you that you are forever faithful, that you are the righteous one, that your mercies, Lord, they're new every single day, that your steadfast love, it doesn't go anywhere ever, that for those of us in Jesus, Lord, we we have inherited not just not just stuff not just life but you father you've given yourself to us thank you thank you for the gift of your spirit and today i ask lord that you would that you would move in power by your spirit that you would just break uh, break us away from things that are restricting uh, the work that you want to do in our lives lord just Teach us, guide us, convict us, encourage us. Please, we pray for all these things. And Lord, those here who don't yet know you, who are just uh, visiting, checking things out, we just pray for them as well. Just pray for peace. Pray, Lord, that you would speak to them through your word. I pray all of this in Jesus' great name, amen. So if you've been around uh, the last few weeks, it's been a lot of fun as we've walked through Matthew chapter 15. We've been looking really at, at just the incredible salvation that has been made available to the entire world through Jesus. Uh, and it's, it's just been so fun to see. We've talked about the freedom we can have from sin and even freedom from spiritual oppression. We've heard some of the heartbeat of God as we've seen his compassion his compassion expressed toward us in Jesus, like God's heart toward us today is compassion. We've seen his radical inclusivity, and we've seen it all really against the backdrop of these healing miracles, healing multitudes, uh, freeing people from the powers of Satan, and also, you know, feeding thousands upon thousands of people. But as Matthew transitions us again today, he does it by reminding us that the, the life The freedom, the salvation, all that Jesus came to bring, never came without opposition. There was always opposition, which is which is true for us today as well. Now, that's probably not very surprising. I mean, most of us just you know we're not surprised to hear there was opposition to Jesus. Doesn't even matter if you believe that he's God or not. If even if you just think he was a great teacher, or maybe you know a subversive kind of revolutionary. Opposition is par for the course, right? Whether it's Gandhi uh, or or Martin Luther or Martin Luther King. Anybody who wants to step into the world and shake up the status quo will be opposed. That's not surprising. But what is surprising is where this opposition to Jesus came from. Drop down to verse 1 with me and you'll see that Matthew highlights a couple specific groups. Pharisees and Sadducees. That's interesting because the Pharisees and the Sadducees They weren't in the habit of getting along very well. They weren't in the habit of teaming up. And yet, both of these groups that were diametrically opposed to each other, both of these groups found common ground in their opposition of Jesus. The question is, why? Well, to understand that, you need to know that, you know, apart from some major theological differences, the thing that really separated, the kind of the major thing that separated these two groups from each other was their methodology. So at this point in time, Israel is occupied by the empire of Rome, the Roman Empire. They're occupying the nation of Israel, and nobody's happy with that, right? Nobody wants it that way, I guess, except Rome, right? But, but everyone's upset. Israel's not supposed to be occupied by a foreign nation. So the Pharisees, the Pharisees were having none of it. They wanted Rome out like yesterday, and so they were just having none of it whatsoever. These were the purists. They were the ones trying to get the nation of Israel back to the law of God in all its rigidity. So their their idea was, okay, if we can get the whole nation back to the law, back to the strict moral code, then maybe we can conjure some of God's favor up again and he'll send a militaristic kind of Messiah to to lead a revolt on our behalf. But the Sadducees, on the other hand, were the pragmatists. The Sadducees were were not like the Pharisees. They were saying, okay, look, let's, let's try to make lemonade out of lemons here. Right? Let's make the best out of a bad situation. So the Sadducees, they were working with Rome. So these guys had a lot of the official power. Again, diametrically opposed groups, but notice that the rigid boundaries of the Pharisees and the pragmatism of the Sadducees both leads them to direct opposition to Jesus. And in a, in a way, you kind of have to feel for these guys, just a little bit. I mean, when you, when you paint it in that light, you, you have to understand that to these guys, they saw themselves, they saw themselves as, as the good guys in the whole thing, right? They understood that, that they were the ones on the right side of history, and they were trying to bring the people back to God. They fully expected that when the Messiah showed up, he would work within the structures that they had built, not against them. The Pharisees and Sadducees found common ground in opposing Jesus because they saw themselves as the insiders, which, by the way, is as much a problem today as it ever was back then. See, when we talk about opposition to, to salvation, opposition to the work that God wants to do in our lives, it's very, very easy for, for you and I to point outside of ourselves. It's very easy to say, you know, maybe we don't walk in all the power that, you know, of the spirit. Or we're not, you know, experiencing everything that Jesus lived, died, and rose to give us. But there's all this opposition outside of us. We've got, you know, the enemy of our souls. We've got a culture that continually, you know, preaches different gospels to us. And then there's other people on top of that. But in actual fact, Westside, the primary opposition that exists, that exists to the work that God wants to do in you today is you. The primary opposition that exists to the work that God wants to do in me today is me. It's within us. Those of us who see ourselves as the insiders, we have these things in our lives that can actually kind of, they can be the thing that sort of twists the shut off valve to to the power of God's spirit working through us. And so today I want to examine some of those things. What could some of those things be as we walk through this text? We'll spend the majority of our time just in the first four verses looking at a few, a few of those, a few kind of, a few forms of opposition that exists within us as Christians to Jesus. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, And I know there's lots of you here. Every week we have that and and you're in the right place. You're in the right spot. This isn't being directly addressed to you today. Hang with us and hopefully you'll get a window uh, into some of what it means to walk with Jesus, to come to Jesus. All right, so if you're taking notes, three kinds of opposition that can exist within us as Christians to Jesus and the salvation uh, that we we are meant to be experiencing in this life. So let's jump into it. The first kind of opposition is found in verse one. Let me read it again. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now now this demand for Jesus to perform a miracle is amazing. And it's amazing in all the wrong ways. I mean, just we have to always, as, as, we, as you know, we have to pay attention to the structure of Matthew's gospel. In the last few weeks, what we've seen is we've seen Jesus' power used to free a little girl from spiritual oppression. We've seen Jesus' power used to heal multitudes. We've seen Jesus' power used to spread a table in the wilderness, right? To lay out a banquet where there should have only been desolation and point to the life-giving power of God. That's how Jesus is using his power. And then immediately, immediately Matthew shows us something totally different. A demand for Jesus to use his power not to heal, not to bring life, but just because these people who consider themselves the insiders have decided that Jesus is on trial. That's why Matthew says their motivation was to put him to the test. See, these men felt that they had a right to demand whatever they wanted from God or de- whatever they wanted from Jesus because they believed if he was anyone important, he would need to prove it to them. Again, remember back to the beginning. If the Messiah is going to show up, he's going to work within our structures. If Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, he's going to work within our structure. He's going to have to prove himself to us. That's the, that's the disposition of a religious insider. The first kind of opposition we're seeing then to the work of Jesus is the opposition of ego. But not just any ego, the very worst kind of ego. We're talking about religious ego. See, religious ego allowed these leaders to divide the whole world into two kinds of people. They had good people and they had bad people. Good people were good because of their moral success. Bad people were bad because of their moral failings. That's how they saw the world. And no surprise, unsurprisingly, these leaders saw themselves as the greatest moral successes of all. So they had the inside track. But if we've learned one thing from the gospel of Matthew so far, it's that Jesus didn't show up to divide the world or even look at the world through the lens of good versus bad. No, Jesus showed up to separate not good versus bad, but proud from humble. I mean, separating good from bad would have just been totally pointless. We learn in the book of Proverbs and in the book of Psalms that no one is righteous, not even one. No one seeks for God on their own. There's not a righteous person among us. All of us together, we are all exactly the same. We are all moral failures in reference to a holy and righteous and perfect God. So Jesus, there would have been no point for him to show up and say, okay, where are the righteous? I want to talk to you. No, instead he showed up and he looked for the humble. And, and by the way, um, you know, religious ego isn't just seen in in moral superiority it can also be seen in exactly the opposite which was a big part of of my story you know so as a a younger guy I would spend the majority of my time drunk high Uh, Saturday nights I'd be out at strip clubs and that kind of thing and then Sunday morning like clockwork I'm in the seats at church but the thing about me the thing about me that was really interesting now looking back was that I, I considered myself sort of a cut above the rest see I I was the one who got it. I was the one who understood the world. Understood the world. I was the one who got what God was doing. I got the gospel, and I was that Christian, that lonely, lonely Christian in these dark, dark places, being light for everybody else. See, I wasn't. I, I I had a religious ego that was raging out of control, not because of moral superiority, but because of moral laxity. And it's just as ugly. It's just as dangerous. It's just as much a perversion of the gospel. Westside, one of the ugliest things in the entire Christian church today is ego. I mean, it's one of the ugliest things that exists for people, for people who claim to have come to salvation through the person and work of Jesus. Egos that are puffed up because God's opened our eyes and made us right with him. Egos that are puffed up because we see ourselves as the insiders. Egos that are raging out of control because of the blessings that God's given us in this life. You know, these egos are really ugly because of where they take us. So look at the text. I mean, what do we see here as we, as we look at these Pharisees, especially in reference to the last few weeks? Well, what, where, where do their egos take them? Well, they led, they, these religious egos led to people who couldn't care less about the people Jesus cared for the most. Religious egos lead to people who constantly crave the applause and the glory of man. Religious egos lead to people who have no problem making demands of God because after all, after all, if he's anybody, surely he will prove himself to us. You know, religious ego, and again I'm I'm speaking to those of you who would identify as Christians, religious ego is one of the reasons that God may seem so incredibly silent in your life. See, God doesn't respond well. He doesn't respond well to people who come to him on the basis of their own moral moral status, moral superiority. He does not respond well to the people who come to him making demands of him. Religious ego is always in the way because religious, what religious ego does is it causes us to forget the primary thing of the, uh, that separates the gospel of Jesus Christ from all other world religions. I mean the primary thing, the one thing. It gets in the way of us remembering it and it is God's love expressed through grace. I mean, the whole point, West Side, is grace. The whole point is that Jesus came for us because we're failures. Jesus came for us because there is none righteous, no, not one. Jesus came for us because if he didn't, we'd be left entirely without hope. And when we forget that, again, like I mentioned at the beginning, it's like twisting that shutoff valve. When we forget that and we start to see ourselves as a cut above or better than others, Man, we just, we just resist in that moment. We quench, we grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And, and, we know, and we know that that's what happens. We know that God actually distances himself in that sense from those with these religious egos because of texts like Psalm 138, 6, which says the Lord cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the proud. Or James 4, verse 6, which says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That may sound like a little bit of bad news, but there's really, really good news to this too because there's a really simple cure. There's such a simple cure to religious ego. If that's something that maybe you struggle with, we just need to look at Jesus in the gospels. When we look at Jesus in the gospels, two things happens to us. First, we see the best version of what we'd wanna be in Jesus. I mean, he is the ultimate. He is the only law keeper. He is the one who came and loved Loved in a way that none of us have ever loved. That's Jesus. We see, we see the best, the, 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 the ultimate picture of what we want to be. And at the same time, we see a massive gap between, between where he is and where we are. Which means that when we read the Gospels, when we look at Jesus in the Gospels, and I mean really look, there's two things that happens to us simultaneously. We're driven to God's grace and we're humbled before him which is the greatest gift ever because it leads to one of the most incredible promises you'll ever hear in all scripture, Isaiah fifty seven fifteen. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. That's God, by the way. I dwell, he says, in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrary. God says, look, there's two places in the cosmos that I live. Two places that are fit for my glory. One is so amazing that you just can't grasp it. But the other is with the humble. I mean, that's that's how seriously grace should affect us. To be, to be filled with the presence of God, to have him dwell with us means we will absolutely be marked by humility. If we want to walk with God west side, if you want to experience the fullness of the salvation that Jesus, that Jesus lived, died, and rose to give you, I mean in all of its power, step one is the destruction of any kind of religious ego. That's step one. It doesn't matter. You might have been a Christian for 40 years. It doesn't matter. It's still step one. It was still hanging on. So that's the first kind of opposition that, exists with, that can exist within us as Christians. The second is found in the first part of Jesus' response. Have a look at verse 2 with me. Jesus answered the Pharisees and the Sadducees by saying, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Massively important statement. Jesus accuses the Pharisees of of something that's really, really actually quite simple. He says, you are experts at discerning the physical and completely unable to to discern the spiritual. This past week, uh, we have been Uh, rained on like crazy. It's Vancouver. What else is new, right? We know that. That's the way that it goes. But last Sunday, last Sunday, NASA uh, posted this picture, uh, which was like a composite of a whole bunch of satellite images, and it showed, which I found super fascinating. This week, I made my wife read the articles and all that kind of stuff because I was so interested in it. But I, what they what they showed was stretching from the from the coast of China all the way to the to the coast of BC, right over top of us here in Vancouver, the, an atmospheric river. They were saying that when this river would open up and fall, there'd be more the same amount of water as kind of at the mouth of the Mississippi would be falling on us. And they were able to say, okay, based on this atmospheric river and the way it's moving, we know exactly how much rain is going to fall on exactly which day in Vancouver. It's incredible. Jesus, Jesus told these Pharisees and Sadducees that because they can look at the sky and see what the weather's going to do today, They were experts at discerning the physical. I mean, what would he say to us? I mean, we have this down. We are so in tune with what happens around us physically. I mean, we are constantly at work training our eyes, training our minds, training our hearts on the physical. We live in the physical. We think about the physical. We become experts in the physical. And even though we know better in theory, some of us us still live like the physical is all there is. The first kind of opposition to Jesus that we, we saw is the opposition of ego. The second is the opposition of physical fixation. Now please don't understand me. Physicality is a great gift given to us by God to enjoy. We're human beings. We're made to be physical. Jesus himself took a physical body for the rest of eternity. The kingdom of God is coming. It's going to break into our world in physical form. Physicality is a very, very good thing. Physicality does not get in the way of us walking with God. Physicality is a gift we've been given. But until the day that Jesus returns and the kingdom is is set up here, we run the risk of becoming totally fixated on all that's physical and forgetting all that's spiritual. And and when that happens, Westside, what happens to us is, is we begin to miss out on what God is doing in the world And what he wants to do in us by the power of his spirit. Don't miss that. God has given himself to us, but he's given himself to us in spirit. We're to worship God in spirit and in truth. If we're totally fixated on the physical, we actually cannot see. We cannot experience what God is doing in us, through us, around us today. Some of us walk into a room like this on a Sunday morning and we've just, our brains are just completely full. Our hearts are completely full with all that's physical. Circumstances that we, know we need to change, situations that are just, that we want, we want to be different. Do you know what God's focused on today? Do you, know what, do you know what that Holy One that we read about, do you know what he is focused on today? The, 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 the being, the, the God of the universe that we sung to and we worshiped already this morning, do you know what he's focused on? He's focused on clothing those who don't even know they're naked. He's focused on feeding those who don't even realize that they're starving to death. He's focused on making rich those who don't even know that they are dirt poor. That's what he's doing. That's what he's working on. That's why we're here as the church. That's why Jesus hasn't come back yet. He's got more clothes, more food, more to give. That's what our God is up to, our Father is up to. And what's so brutal about our tendency towards physical fixation is that it just feeds our disillusionment and our disappointment with God. When all we see is the physical in this life, Jesus makes no sense to us. I mean, the prayers he answers and doesn't answer makes no sense to us. What he's doing in this world makes no sense to us. Like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, many of us have trained our eyes on the physical. And so, in the same way that Jesus made no sense to them, our life in him just, you know, maybe it just doesn't really find a place in our lives that are physically fixated. Instead, instead, we need to remember the words of Paul in places like 2 Corinthians 4 where he says, so we do not lose heart. No disillusionment, no, dis- no discouragement Because God isn't working in the physical the way that you expect him to. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul says, look, physically speaking, I know things are a mess. Our bodies are breaking down. The church is being persecuted. The universe is so temporary that it's not a good place for any of us to put our hope. But thank God, our salvation in Jesus, our salvation in Jesus has led to the spirit already at work in our world and in us and really in the cosmos. The kingdom is breaking in it will break in fully but we will not have eyes to see unless we're training ourselves to look to the things that are unseen some of us are angry at God even tempted to call it quits I talk to people on a regular basis who say things like you know I came in this morning just ready to hang it all up give God one last chance he may not be working the way you expect him to because he's working in a far greater way and something you need far more. Like a parent who knows what their kid really needs even though what they ask for is a lot different. It's not that we need to change our perception of God. It's not even that we need to change our expectations. Listen, God has spoken healing over you in Jesus. He's paid for it already. Your body will be made completely It will be completely glorified. You will be completely healthy. That's happening. That's coming. God has promised to expel every ounce of evil in this world. God will restore all things. But the day is not today. At least not this morning yet. The kingdom, as we've said, will break in. But until until then, this is our one opportunity. And I want us just to understand this. This is the one opportunity that you and I have as, as Christians the single opportunity that we are ever going to experience to walk by faith and not by sight. When Jesus comes, the time for faith is over. We won't need our faith anymore. We'll be face to face with him. All these promises will be fulfilled. This is our one shot. This is our one shot. We are, for all eternity going to look back on what we did with these lives, because this is the one time that we get to worship Him as God and walk with Him as God and give our lives to Him as God, without ever seeing anything yet. It's, I mean, it's an amazing opportunity. This is the moment in time that we inhabit. until the kingdom comes, West side. it's faith, not sight. It's hope, not despair. It's looking for opportunities for God to to work through us his spiritual salvation into a physical world. And yeah, he does work it out physically at times too. But if we want to be those conduits of of healing and of life and of regeneration, God does those things through us. If we want to be those conduits, we've got to get our eyes focused on, on the unseen, on what's eternal. The last kind of opposition to Jesus, then we've seen the opposition of religious ego and the opposition of physical fixation. The last one that I want to see is found in the rest of Jesus' response. Uh, just really one word I want us to catch from verse four, <clears throat> where Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Jonah. So he left them and departed. Now we've already looked at what the sign of Jonah is if you're with us back in chapter 12. Uh, so I'm not going to go into today deeply except to say what it is is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection three days later. So what he's saying is, look, evil and adulterous generation, no sign is going to be given to you except for one. The greatest sign you could ever imagine, Jesus rising from the dead. But what we're seeing is that it really likely won't matter. Um, unless these religious leaders are given eyes to see it anyway. The word I want to focus, though, on with you in verse 4 is the word adulterous. Why would Jesus speak of adultery here? I mean, why does he equate what's happening, the opposition he's experiencing from these religious leaders to adultery? Well, the opposition of the insiders to Jesus is like adultery because God's relationship with his people is like a marriage. See, this is all about the fact that to be God's people means to be joined to him in an eternal relationship. Opposing Jesus is like adultery because at the very center of this whole thing is the reality that he's made us one with him. Listen, there's no such thing as coming to Jesus and having even one area of our lives remain unchanged. No such thing. Why? Well, because marriage changes everything. I mean, those of you who are married, you know that when, when my wife and I got married, uh, we've been married for just over 10 years now. When we got married, uh, I remember early on, this will sound really, really stupid to you, and I'm okay with that, but I remember uh, driving home from work. We, we were probably married, I don't know, a few weeks. Driving home from work, and I had a frustrating day. I was not happy. I was not in a good mood, and all I wanted to do was do the exact same thing I always do when I'm in a bad mood while I lived alone, which was order a pizza, and watch the hockey game. That's all I wanted to do. I wanted to walk through the front door of my house with a big pizza and just put it on the table and then just watch the game. That's all I wanted. But I knew I couldn't do that. Why? Because if I bring home a pizza, that's going to piss my wife off after she'd just been, you know, making dinner for us. This is not going to work. I now, in this small little stupid thing, I cannot do this. I am constrained. Why? Marriage changes everything. There are no areas left untouched. You know that. Listen, you don't get to take a break in your marriage as much as you would like to. It will cause your marriage to end, right? That's what happens. If you wake up one day and say, look, I just want to take today off, it's not going to work very well for you. It won't. And West Side, West Side the same is true with God. But how many of us, how ma- I mean, it's funny to think about with human marriage, But how many of us live exactly that way with our Heavenly Father? I just need a break. I just need to do, I I need some me time. I need some time apart. I need some time where I'm not focusing on that. I need to focus on something else. Coming to Jesus, the covenant, the eternal covenant that he's brought us into is a marriage covenant. Covenant. It's why when we oppose him in our lives, it is the same as adultery in that sense. The opposition then, this third kind of opposition, is the opposition of infidelity. Now the opposition of infidelity is a problem for us because God doesn't get involved in open relationships. He's not like Will Smith. It's a good thing he's not like Will Smith. I actually looked it up this morning, just to, I don't know if it's true or not. That's that's what we hear, right? But I also found out that apparently Brad Pitt is the same way. God's not not like Will Smith or Brad Pitt at all. He doesn't work, he does not work, he does not work in those who consider him simply one of their hobbies. And I'm not trying to berate anybody, I'm not trying to, you know, bring a big hammer down or anything like that on anybody, but. Some of us, even though we wouldn't say it that way, we wouldn't wouldn't call him one of our hobbies, we live that way. We compartmentalize our time with him to this part of the day or this part of the week or whatever. That's not walking with God. That's not walking in the power of the Spirit. You're not going to experience the salvation that Jesus lived, died, and rose to give you as long as you live that way. He wants to change everything about your life. He wants to make it so a stupid thing like bringing home a pizza and watching the game is all of a sudden, you know, what would, what would my spouse say? How, how is that gonna, what, what is obedience in this moment for me with my heavenly father? To obey is better than sacrifice. As 1 Samuel 15 says, God is after obedient people. That's what, that's what shows that we're walking with him. You know, I was thinking about this and trying to figure out, you know, how can we take a measurement of this? How can we sort of get an idea? Where am I? You know, am I doing well at this or not well at this? And I was trying to figure out what could we use? And I think anticipation for Jesus' return is a good one. Because what we see in the Gospel of Matthew, it's actually a theme there where the religious leaders, uh, they, they know, as we see in the opening chapters, they know where Jesus is to be born. They know, you know, approximately when. They know the circumstances surrounding his birth. And yet they're not there. And now they're standing in front of the Messiah and all he is is an obstacle. And if you know where the story's going, you know these same religious leaders will be part of the mob that strings Jesus up on the cross. The question is, are we any different in our lack of anticipation? We obviously weren't there for his first advent, his first coming, but how is our excitement for his second? I mean, if this is a marriage relationship, I mean, some of you have been in long, you know, long-term, long-distance relationships. What kind of level of excitement do you have when you're about to see the person you love? Well, with Jesus, our whole lives are found in him. What kind of anticipation should we have for the day we get to see him face-to-face? I mean, if you've ever you know, for those who have been married and never planned a wedding, I had nothing to do with the planning of my wedding. For good reason. I wanted nothing to do with it. You know, keep that far, far away from me. But I still knew the wedding was around the corner and my focus was still lasered in on that day. There's a wedding coming. There's a wedding coming. Jesus will return as a groom for his church. How's your, how's your level of anticipation? After the first gathering, I had a, a girl come up to me, uh, and, and I loved what she said. I asked her if I could share it, and she just said, you know, she, she's, this guy has just come into her life, and, and uh, she's, so, she's so focused on, on wanting to get married, and she's so focused on this guy now, and she's so excited for what's happened in the relationship, and she says, I think it's pushing, out my, it's pushing away my anticipation for Jesus. That's exactly it. Those are the kind of things we have to recognize. What has your heart today? Because if you're in an eternal covenant with the creator, God, like a marriage, then your life is completely wrapped up in him. So we've seen three kinds of opposition to Jesus that can exist in us as Christians. Religious ego, physical fixation, and infidelity. But we need to understand one more thing before we respond. Why are these forms of opposition so effective at cutting off God's power in our lives? So Jesus, Jesus and his disciples get back in the boat. They cross back over the Sea of Galilee. They step back on a dry land. But Jesus is still stuck thinking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so he wants to warn his disciples. Which is why in verse 6, Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The disciples, as we're getting used to, have no idea what Jesus is talking about whatsoever. In verse 7, and they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. So the disciples are trying to understand why Jesus is talking about baking bread here, and Jesus just interrupts them in the middle of it in verse 8 by saying, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. All right, so these poor disciples, right? I mean, they're trying their best. They're really working hard here. They're just not, they're not on the same wavelength as Jesus. Next week, next week is one of the most pivotal and beautiful texts in all of the gospel of Matthew. And we'll start to see uh, some of that begin to change by the grace of God. But these guys here, you know, they need Jesus' help. So Jesus reminds them of the miraculous feedings they just saw. He tells them what should have been obvious. This was never about Bread. This was about God's desire to to extend to the whole world the bread of life. This is about getting everything out of the way that opposes the work of salvation that Jesus wants to do. Every way of viewing yourself and the world and God that gets in the way. And the fact that Jesus used the image of leaven to speak about these forms of opposition that he just faced from the Pharisees and Sadducees tells us at least three things about why these, these kinds of opposition are so dangerous for, all, for us. First of all, they can keep us from ever understanding or finding salvation. You need to know the symbol of leaven was a big part of Israel's, a big part of the Jewish nation. We talked about it, a little bit about it last week, but the exodus, when Israel fled from slavery in Egypt to freedom, uh, when that moment happened, God actually commanded them to get rid of all their leaven. Right, to, to, to expel all the leaven from their homes, from their food, to eat only unleavened bread for this period of time. And then every year after that, le- unleavened bread became a really big part of the Passover celebration, which commemorated uh, their exodus from Egypt. In addition, there were other Old Testament laws that commanded an absence of, absence of leaven in things like the grain offering because for the Jewish nation, leaven was synonymous with sin. It doesn't, didn't always have to be used that way. We saw it used in Matthew's Gospel earlier in a positive sense, but it was always used sort of, the nation would have understood it that way. I mean, just, just the opposition of the religious ego alone is enough to keep us from Jesus. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you claim to be Christian. It doesn't matter if you came forward at a rally or if you you prayed a prayer once upon a time. It doesn't matter. Religious ego is directly antithetical to grace and grace is the center of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As long as we feel that we have some right to salvation or that we're deserving or cut above others in salvation, we're showing no signs of God's spirit in us. Second, these forms of opposition are dangerous because they can keep us from experiencing the freedom from sin that Jesus, that Jesus lived, died, and rose to give us. I'm taking this from text like 1 Corinthians 5, which says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In this passage, Paul's talking specifically about sexual sin, but you can insert whatever you want here. Some of us are are bound by habitual sins, patterns of thought, ways of seeing ourselves, the world waves of discouragement and constant barrage of lies that the enemy just tosses at us over and over again, we need to lay down religious ego. We need to walk with the spirit. We need to get laser focused on the coming kingdom because Jesus has given us freedom from these things. He's given us the power we need to defeat these things. And finally, the image of leaven tells us that even a tiny bit of it will permeate our entire lives. That's what leaven does. It permeates everything, like Paul just said in, in that text in First Corinthians. It's why It's why if you oppose Jesus in a single area of your life, you will quench the Spirit in every other area. I mean, that's the way that it works. I often have people come to me and say, you know, I just don't feel like I'm walking in the Spirit. And that's a good thing to pay attention to. It's subjective and maybe a little emotional, but it's good to pay attention to. And so sometimes good advice in those kind of situations can be, well, what's the last thing that God called you to that you just weren't obedient with? I mean, Maybe it was just a tiny thing. Maybe it was a, you know, go back and make that little error on your taxes, make that right. Maybe it was confess that you weren't quite honest when you took that exam. Maybe it was an apology I had someone come up to me after the first and say, you know, for me it was, you know, I told my coworker to F off this week and I feel like I need to go say, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's a small thing, but man, these little things, again, to obey is better than sacrifice. God's after the little things. The little things are really the important things. These are the things that can keep us from experiencing the salvation Jesus has given us. So as we wrap up now, I just want to take a minute here to show you one last thing. One thing that Matthew actually doesn't tell us about in his gospel, he doesn't allude to it, but Mark, uh, in his gospel, uh, as he tells the same story, gives us a picture of it. I want you to see just a little tiny bit of Jesus' heart toward the religious religious opposition that he was facing. So after the religious leaders demanded a sign, Mark gives us a tiny window into Jesus' emotional response. I mean, how he was actually kind of handling that in that moment. In Mark 8, 12, we're told that Jesus... (coughs) Sigh deeply in his spirit. Just think about that for a second. I mean, we're talking about infinite God. Infinite God doing one of these. (sighs) Right? Not a moment of frustration, not anxiety, just a spirit that's tired. I mean, this religious opposition is the story of the Bible over and over and over and over and over again, and you and I are no exception to it. Jesus wants this freedom for you and for me often way more than we want it for ourselves. His sigh speaks to a deep love being spurned over and over and over again. And as we've seen, you know, this freedom that God wants for us, it's not just for those who haven't yet come to Jesus, as if the rest of us are now living in perfect freedom. No, there's still chains. There's still bondage. There's more for us to have. And God wants for you to walk in the fullness of your inheritance as much as possible today. We can twist that shut-off valve again, just all the way open, And just let it flow. But we need to lay down our religious ego. And we need to go to him as God. We need to lay down our physical fixation. And we need to walk with him in in the spirit. And we need to lay down our infidelity. And remember, remember the marriage covenant become laser focused on the coming kingdom. And for those here in this room, and I know it's not everybody and that's okay, but for those here in this room and God's speaking to you and there's something here for you in what's been said this morning or what's in this text, if that's you and you want to respond to that just by taking these things to God, confessing them, repenting repenting of them, asking him to help you with them, it's that simple. Just ask him for help. Ask him for his spirit if that's you and you will do that. Hang on to your hat because God will answer that prayer. I promise you, and it's not a promise for me, it's a promise in his word. Those who ask for the Holy Spirit and for life and for freedom in him, they will find it. So let's pray as we go into time response in a minute. We're gonna go in with expectation and a pursuit a pursuit of our God because he loves us and he has more for us to walk in than we are currently experiencing. So let me pray and then we'll respond together. Father, our Father and our God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the spirit. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust you with all these things that when we find uh, that we're lacking in certain areas as we always are, Father, thank you that that is the entire point of the gospel. That you came for people like us, people who lack, so you could fill us up, so you could get all the glory, and so that we could find complete freedom from anxiety and weight and pressure of having to figure it out on our own. Thank you that we are your creation, we are your image bearers, and you are preparing your church for a wedding day. Lord, I pray we don't know if it's this afternoon. Or if it's in 100 years from now, we don't know, Father, but we do know that we need you to get us ready so we can be those faithful, those faithful sons and daughters who are prepared, have eyes open, have awoken from sleep because our salvation is nearer now than when we first began. So, Lord, would you remind us of that? Would you draw us to yourself in love? as we remember you uh, with with the elements of, of, of your supper, would you help us, God, just to respond in ways that are pleasing and appropriate to such an incredible gospel and such a great salvation. It's in your name we pray, Father, amen.